This program is brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights in the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello and welcome to the James Wilson Podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Snedeker. Today we're pleased to host a special edition of the podcast featuring a discussion of Texas's Senate Bill 8, the Heartbeat Act, which declares unlawful the intentional abortion of an unborn baby once the heartbeat is detectable, which can be as early as six weeks into a pregnancy. Here to join us on today's podcast are two very good friends of the Institute. First, Adam White. Adam is the co-executive director of the C. Boyden Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State and a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. He's also a public member of the Administrative Conference of the United States, and he served on the leadership councils for the administrative law sections of both the ABA and the Federalist Society. After clerking for Judge David Sentel of the D.C. Circuit, he practiced constitutional and regulatory law in Washington, D.C., with a special focus on energy infrastructure regulation, financial regulation, administrative law, and the separation of powers. Adam became the center's executive director in 2017 and is now its co-executive director. Adam has a notable piece on Texas's heartbeat legislation in Commentary Magazine titled Abortion's Texas Arm Twist. Second, we have David Forte. David is professor of law at Cleveland State University, where he was the inaugural holder of the Charles Emmerich Jr. Calfrey Halter and Griswold Endowed Chair. He's also one of our James Wilson Senior Scholars, having been on the faculty of our James Wilson Fellowship since its inception in 2014. Over the course of his long and distinguished career, he's taught at several other institutions, including Princeton, the University of Warsaw, and Trento University. He served as book review editor for the American Journal of Jurisprudence and has edited a volume entitled Natural Law and Contemporary Public Policy. His other book, Islamic Law Studies, Classical and Contemporary Applications, has been published by Austin and Winfield. He's also the senior editor of the Heritage Guide to the Constitution, a clause-by-clause analysis of the Constitution of the United States. His 2012 law review article titled Life, Heartbeat, Birth, A Medical Basis for Reform, was among the most significant offerings to shape legal debate over abortion and fetal heartbeat. Let's start with you, David. You've been involved in pro-life legal battles concerning fetal heartbeat for years now. Give us a sense for how this effort to recognize fetal heartbeat began and your involvement in it. We've all seen these bumper stickers for decades. Uh, Abortion stops a beating heart. Well, around the year 2011, a wonderful woman, Janet uh, Folger, now Janet Porter, um, thought that we should take that literally to legislation. She and I had worked together in Ohio on the partial birth abortion laws, um, ultimately rather successfully when we finally got to the Supreme Court on another case. And at first I was reluctant to see what we could do to pass legislation that would uh, effectively ban abortion at such an early period in the pregnancy. But the more I researched it, the more I thought about it, um, and the more I did found some longitudinal studies 
about the effects of uh, pregnancy on live birth, the more I realized that a lot had happened since Casey. Specifically, I found that once a heartbeat is detected, longitudinal studies showed that there was about a 95% chance, <clears throat> pardon me, of the, of the child reaching full term. I was also focused on the fact that Justice Kennedy had written a very strong defense of life in the Gonzalez case in 2007, and that he might be ready to make a change specifically on the fact that the viability line, which had been invented by Roe v. Wade and had been reaffirmed in Casey, had no coherence to it. <clears throat> so <clears throat> we formed this legislation on testing for cardiac activity and banning abortions once that cardiac activity had been detected. We had difficulty passing it through Ohio. The National Right to Life Committee, for example, was opposed to it, thinking it wasn't a prudent method of attacking the abortion regime. However, it did get passed in 2013 through Arkansas and North Dakota. And both those laws, of course, were struck down at the district court level and they were both upheld at panels in the same circuit, but the North Dakota panel gave us everything we wanted. The North Dakota panel said, yes, this would ban abortions before the line of viability, and therefore we are forced to strike down the law. And then the court, that panel spent two thirds of its opinion appealing to the Supreme Court to change the law, which is exactly what we wanted. Supreme Court denied cert, so that tactic didn't work. But by 2018, with a change in electoral politics, things began to change. And many states began passing partial birth abortion, I'll strike that, passing heartbeat, heartbeat legislation. Um, to the point that this year, we now have 15 states that have banned abortion in one form or another once heartbeat has been detected. Now these laws, as well as the Mississippi law, which is coming up before the Supreme Court later this year, strike at the heart of Casey and Roe, which is the viability line. To wit, the Supreme Court has said that once a child passes viability, that is, it can live meaningfully, whatever that means outside the womb, the state may intercede to protect the child. Now, from the beginning, that notion of viability is nonsensical. Uh, it says to the woman, once that child can be born safely, you have to keep it even if you wanna terminate your pregnancy. But when it cannot be born safely, then you can get rid of it. In a brief before the Supreme Court uh, uh, on the uh, Mississippi case, 
I, I likened it to a skipper of a lifeboat who was told that if you have someone on your lifeboat who cannot swim, you can throw him overboard. But if he can swim, you have to keep him on board until you reach port. The entire regime of the viability line is nonsensical and it is incoherent. And it is also vague. It is very difficult to tell in any specific child at any specific time during the pregnancy whether that child would survive a birth. Uh, most doctors do not analyze that in terms of the condition of the specific child, but use a simple statistical analysis of, of, uh, of um, uh, cranial uh, circumference or, or, uh, or uh, length, of, uh, length of the spinal column and test that against statistical probabilities and doctors differ on that. So from the beginning, the viability line makes no logical, moral, or uh, legal sense whatsoever. And that's what the heartbeat bills do. They say, if you get rid of the viability line and you simply say, does the state have an interest in protecting a child who is likely to be born once cardiac activity is detected, then the state law should be upheld. As one obstetrician told me, <clears throat> she said, a million and one things have to happen before a, a spermatozoa successfully fertilizes an ovum. And a million and one things also have to happen before that fertilized ovum gets implanted into the uterus. But once cardiac activity begins, she says, it's pretty clear sailing. And what we obstetricians do is simply monitor the pregnancy to make sure that things don't go wrong. In fact, the definition of a viable pregnancy to an obstetrician is one where the fetus at any stage of its development has a live beating heart. It is not a line about whether it can survive outside the womb or not. <clears throat> so now the states have spoken. 15 states have agreed that the biological evidence is overwhelming, that once cardiac activity is detected, that is a human being, not only from the time of, of conception, but a human being that's on its way to being born. And it would only take a lethal intervention to prevent that. And states have a right to make sure that that child reaches birth. Thanks, David. That's such a, a nice comprehensive history of kind of how we got to where we are today. I wanna to follow up by asking though, Precisely, how do you understand heartbeat legislation fitting within the scope of all of the other attempts by um, pro-life uh, legislators um, and pro-life lawyers in trying to chip away at the Casey regime? Um, do, you, do you think of it as, as of a piece or do you think that this is really a radically different tack? It's both, it's both. Uh, so first of all, as one of a piece, if you recall 20 odd years ago, after the Casey decision came down, um, the pro-life movement actually went into a kind of shock. <clears throat> the switch um, by three justices who we had thought would be on our side was, uh, was kind of earth shaking. And there was some violent reactions to abortion clinics at that time. 
which were, which uh, repelled every pro-lifer that I know about. And so what the pro-life movement did was to begin to formulate types of legislation, the point of which would save perhaps a few lives, but the real point of which would be to illustrate the humanity of the unborn child. And so every kind of piece of legislation, no matter how partial, whether it's a fetal homicide law or a, a, um, a ultrasound law or, <clears throat> or an informed consent law or judicial uh, uh, or a, 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 a minor permission law, all these laws point to the humanity of the unborn. They don't save a lot of lives in, in terms of clinically stopping abortions. They may have saved tens of thousands of lives by the moral lesson that they are teaching that gets spread through the populace when these mm -hmm. laws are passed. So in that sense, the heartbeat legislation points unmistakably to the humanity of the child, not as simply a biological event, but as something that's an ongoing process where this child is going to be born almost inevitably, almost inevitably. But in one, another way, it is radically different. It's radically different as we can see when it now is getting in a form enforced in the Texas situation in that it is not saving a few lives. It is saving the bulk of lives, mm -hmm. the majority of abortion, of uh, pregnancies that would have been aborted, <clears throat> at least within Texas, excluding those who go out of state, of course, uh, at least within Texas, now are being saved. The abortion clinics are not working. So it is something that is a radical affirmation as in a practical, practical sense of actually helping these children to survive that they would not have survived before. I, want, I was hoping I could bring Adam in now um, because I think what you've demonstrated, David, is that the law acts as a teacher. Um, and oftentimes we understand law as teaching in a modest way. Um, as Aquinas taught us, the purpose of law is not to lead people to virtue suddenly, but rather gradually. But um, Adam, I think with the, um, uh, with the effort in, as David described, 15 states um, to um, codify um, the heartbeat standard, and now of course, Texas's um, uh, attempt successfully um, to um, enact um, uh, its provisions allowing there to be um, private rights of action. We'll get to the enforcement mechanism in a little bit, um, but I was, I was hoping you might be able to do a riff on um, just what you think is being taught by this legislation. Oh, that's interesting. I, I, I thought you were gonna ask what was taught by the, by the Supreme Court precedents that gave rise to the legislation. Mm -hmm. um, we could go down that road too. Well, let me start with that and finish with your real question. Um, I once heard a very smart judge joke about the kind of Supreme Court deliberations that must occur in abortion cases, where the Casey precedent sets the undue burden standard. I mean, what does that look like? Does that look like the justices go back and one of them says, well, I think this law presents an undue burden. And then another justice says, well, I think this presents a due burden. Uh, the, the framework, the precedent itself I think teaches the lesson of judges as policymakers 
as value judgment strikers uh, rather than as law interpreters or law finders. I think this legislation, um, it teaches a few things. Um, first of all, it teaches that a Supreme Court framework that presents itself as so wrapped up in prudential judgments and factual assumptions uh, will ultimately be challenged on precisely the same terms. And that a, a, a framework like Casey opens the door, almost really demands that policymakers think in terms of, of uh, prudential judgments and, and facts on matters that have changed substantially over time. You think of the science of medicine and thus the science of abortion over the last decades, uh, it has always trended towards the identification, recognition, and protection of life at an ever younger age in the womb. And so it's only natural then that legislation, as, as Professor Forte pointed out, would move in, in this direction. And therefore, I think the law itself teaches, that first of all, legislatures are, are well-equipped to draw these lines for themselves. In fact, they're quintessentially legislative lines, lines that the judges themselves probably shouldn't be drawing, but rather legislatures. But a legislature can do this in a thoughtful way, but also in a way laden with the value judgments, informed by the value judgments of the community. Um, but the other lesson I think that this legislation teaches is that this is the only way that law can change in the United States on a subject like this, sort of with a lot of nuance, a lot of reasoning, but ultimately sort of eyes wide open recognition that a that the legislatures must either invite or accept the invitation to confrontation with such an open-ended and, and I think substantively vacant uh, precedent like Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful you, you took it down the, um, the structural um, uh, lessons that are being taught. I guess I want to invite David to jump in maybe to talk a little bit more about um, what is this law trying to teach um, in your view uh, as, uh, as part of our greater understanding of the human person um, and when our rights begin. Well, uh, the law simply states what every pregnant woman knows. Um, abortion is, as, 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 an, as another obstetrician told me, abortion is the uh, infusion of a disease, of a malady onto a healthy body. The uh, pregnancy is a natural process it affects the hormones, the brain chemistry of the woman. Um, and all this is interrupted by uh, an artificial violent act um, that, that changes the nature of what's really happening. It breaks a relationship which is intrinsic to uh, humanity. And uh, what heartbeat says is that when the heartbeat begins, when it is detected, you have no excuse to say that there is not another person in a relationship with its mother at that time. Adam did say something though, I think regarding legislation, which has not, which, which the pro-life movement could, I think, uh, exploit. I mean, and I mean this in the, in the sense of uh, increasing our, our persuasiveness. And that is, he said, do the justices decide what is an undue burden as opposed to what is a due burden. 
You know, we haven't talked about what a due burden would be. A due burden is the moral burden of seeing that the life is preserved. That is an, that's that moral argument of a due burden, actually using the word due burden. An undue burden is defined as putting an obstacle in the, in the way of the woman to obtain an abortion. Well, what would be a due burden? Due burden would be the humanity and the preservation of the life. That, that would be a due burden. So I think it, it, might, be, it might be useful for us to speak, start speaking about what due burdens are on all of us who have human concerns for other people who are placed within our, uh, placed in a dependency situation upon us, both men and women. Adam, you wanna jump in and run with that? Well, I, I don't know that I could add anything more to it except to say that to hear David sort of elaborate the point is again to sort of point back at the absurdity of the Supreme Court doctrine. There's, it's hard to, it's hard for me to imagine how the training of a lawyer and the judgments that we ask rightly of judges, the power that we vest in judges, positions judges any better than other parts of government to make those distinctions. This question of what is a due burden? I mean, I was, I was being playful, but it's a, it's, it's a, it's an important point um, that, first of all, it reminds us, and ironically, even the Supreme Court in a, a moment where it, I don't think it was trying to teach this lesson, but by using the term undue burden points to the fact that there are due burdens, burdens that aren't always chosen, um, and that we as a society inherit, you know, have, have always recognized, legislated on, lived our, built our lives around these unchosen attachments. Um, and the Supreme Court in selecting the term undue burden um, while trying to sort of free people of those obligations uh, actually reminds us that those obligations exist and often are, are unchosen. And that's not to say just in the life of a mother, um, but in the life of all of us, it cuts much further beyond abortion. And it speaks to so much of the work of government, what we owe one another, what we owe to our society at large, what we owe to family and so on things that I think the government needs to do less and less to break down and more and more to reinforce. Um, but at the very least, in the context of abortion, it's hard for me to understand how a judge's training equips him or her to make those decisions uh, any better uh, than, than a legislature. And in so many areas, other areas of law in the United States, which began as a common law country, you know, there are many areas of law where judges were, were in, in effect, deciding what was a due burden and an undue burden. We saw this in areas of tort law and negligence. We see this in, unwritten, in the, the law of unwritten contracts and so many other things. But in each of those areas of law, even when they began with judicial judgments, they were often supplanted by legislative judgments. And if anything, the story of American law and especially the story of progressive American law was for a very long time, the preference of legislative judgments on those subjects in place of the judicial judgments. And it is interesting that in this one area of law, uh, we have over the course of 40 years, uh, almost 50 years, have been pushing the legislatures out aggressively and, and, and inviting or demanding the judges legislate on these matters instead. And in the in the context of, of fetal heartbeat, I guess the we might be able to say then that while we are talking about the life of the mother, 
um, and what is you know the you know the burden uh, do or undo um, to her. I think you know with with the SB eight legislation and the legislation in these in these other states, the conversation is shifting perhaps more and more to a question of what is that earliest point at which we no longer have to, as David was saying, think about only one um, you know individual um, in this uh, in in this equation. Uh, although you know maybe burden is isn't the um, isn't the right phraseology for you know the the life of the unborn child. Um, but uh, yeah, Adam, if you want to pick up, on I that. just I just want to say in thinking through these things, and and then David a few moments ago was talking about analogous areas of law where we 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 allocate powers of life and death among people in extraordinary situations. I just want to be very clear, you know, in that theme, the relationship between a mother and an unborn child is unlike anything else in human experience. And I, I always sort of resist the, the, the urge to, to oversimplify it. And, and so I just want to make very clear here too, that, that when I, I'm saying these things, I'm not oversimplifying. I, I, I'm lucky to have children and I've seen those stages of life, the life of my wife and the life of my children later born, um, children later unborn, um, or who, who children who, who weren't born. And, um, there's nothing else in human experience like it. And I think uh, there's a danger on the side of conservatives to oversimplify that relationship um, into, into matters of, of life and death analogous to sort of garden variety murder, if there can be such a thing. And I guess I'm rambling now, but I just want to say that part of the difficulty of this area of law um, and the, the precedents the Supreme Court have, have, have had our society live under for these decades They've oversimplified it in some ways, um, but I think by by aggrandizing this power to the courts and taking it out of the legislature, in a way they helpfully reminded us how complicated these judgments are, how complicated these questions are, and certainly they're not the proper province of courts, but I'd say when they do return to legislatures, it's incumbent upon legislatures, I think, to handle these things with the utmost delicacy thoughtfulness, um, nuance, and, and moral judgment that this particular relationship between the mother and the unborn child deserves. That, that, I, think that, I think that's nicely put, Adam. Um, if it's okay, uh, I'd like to shift over yeah, to- uh, I wanna add something Go in ahead, here. David. You know, I've been, um, uh, I've been on uh, the side that Adam is articulating now that these decisions should basically be uh, in the hands of legislatures. However, there's something about the abortion decision which is really quite stark, and that is on a fundamental principle of the most moral basis of what human beings are, the Supreme Court got it so drastically wrong. Um, we have friends like Hadley Arcus who want the court to intervene affirmatively in, in, in articulating moral principles as a, as a basis for the positive law. Um, and we can differ as to how much the court should do that. But where the court so affirmatively goes in the opposite direction, there is something that we should say, stop. This is, this is not only beyond your competence, but it's beyond your moral compass uh, 
to have mm -hmm. e e engineered yourself into such a situation. So in the discussion over S Texas's SB8 uh, legislation, the focus of attention has been on the enforcement mechanism in the bill. And so uh, what I wanted to do was just briefly um, read that. And um, I actually wanted to first invite David um, after I you know, finished for the benefit of our listeners reading the um, enforcement mechanism uh, language. Um, I wanted to get David's um, thoughts on just how he would have envisioned his heartbeat um, uh, uh, research and um, you know, the proposals that um, he has made um, before state legislatures and Congress, um, how he would have envisioned this manifestation. But again, for the benefit of our listeners, um, section 208 of the legislation reads, civil liability for violation or aiding or abetting violations. Any person other than an officer or employee of a state or local governmental entity in this state may bring a civil action against any person who one, performs or induces an abortion in violation of this subchapter, two, knowingly engages in conduct that aids or abets the performance or inducement of an abortion, including paying for or reimbursing the costs of abortion through insurance or otherwise, if the abortion is performed or induced in violation of this subchapter, regardless of whether the person knew or should have known that the abortion would be performed or induced in violation of this subchapter, or three, intends to engage in the conduct described by um, the subdivision in this uh, section one or two. Um, so David, uh, when, again, when you were um, making these proposals, did you ever envision someone like Ar uh, Jonathan Mitchell, the architect of this um, uh, uh, legislation, um, did you ever envision something like this? No, I didn't, and I really compliment him uh, on this uh, brilliant idea. It has some problems, and I think Adam and I will talk about some of the problems in, the, in its mechanism, but it does illustrate a couple of things uh, that are really essential to a society that values life. Number one, the, the first thing it, it says is that a harm to another individual is not just criminal, uh, but it breaks relationships on this, what we would call the civil side or the human side or the non-criminal side, that we are definitely connected. Um, one of the great harms of the picture of abortion jurisprudence that the Supreme Court has given us is this picture of the lonely woman in her, in her quest for self-determination with a uh, this great decision as to whether it should include a child or not. And the terrible decision by, and I think it was authored this part in Casey by Justice O'Connor, that somehow men cannot be trusted with the knowledge that their wife might be pregnant and that she has to inform them if she wants to have an abortion. That breaks, that breaks so many essential connecting connections between all of us. Now what this, legislation does is it says is that we all have a stake in the life of innocent people and that if the state will not protect it at least we can affirm it by some kind of monetary penalty now the mechanism of that has some problems i understand that but it does affirm our interconnectedness in a way that the criminal law does not 
There was a great jurisprude in Italy, people don't read him now, named Giorgio del Vecchio. And he had an insight and he said, the criminal law is an exception. The criminal, we start with civil relationships. We start with interconnectedness in a society and we only come up with rules not to do things when people break that interconnectedness. The givenness of human society is mutual support. That's the givenness of mutual society. I mean, Hobbes was so wrong thinking that that didn't pre-exist until you contracted for it. No. Uh, so uh, so the, the, the wonderful moral lesson of this uh, wonderful insight of making it a civil wrong is to affirm that we all have a stake in each other's lives. So Adam, if it's okay, I'd like to read a section from your excellent essay and commentary and ask you to kind of respond to that. Um, and, well, sorry, use that as a springboard. Um, How and, can I argue with that? Go, yeah, go right ahead. I mean, I mean the author, the, the, the author is a, a guy I know so well. Um, okay, so you write in your, in your commentary um, uh, piece on, on the Texas legislation, uh, quote, the court's limited power is only part of this conversation. All of us, especially constitution-minded conservatives, should be wary of the legal framework that Texas has created. Our system of government at the federal and state levels depends on the bedrock of constitutional structure, separating government powers and committing them to the proper parts of government. But the Heartbeat Act, like so many other statutes that empower civil suits, sits uneasily in that framework. Why should we be thinking of this Heartbeat Act like so many of these other civil suits and not sui generis based on the wrong of abortion. Yeah. Well, and let I don't pretend that this aspect of the Heartbeat Act just came from nowhere. Right. There's two areas of law that have given rise to the need for that provision in the Heartbeat Act. And the one, the first which we already discussed is the totally vague and amorphous nebulous standard of of American Abortion jurisprudence, the, the undue burden standard, which means everything and nothing, I suppose. And the other place where it, well, the other area of law that is very important here is just the basic procedural body of procedural law that governs lawsuits challenging the constitutionality of a statute. Um, when a state passes an abortion law, somebody will challenge it in federal court, probably a carefully selected federal court where they maximize the odds of getting a sympathetic judge. And that judge will apply the nebulous Casey standard, um, but also the nebulous standards governing preliminary injunctions and TROs, which are a mix of the analysis of the merits of the case, but also a balance of equities in either in favor of or against preemptively freezing the enforcement of this of this law while the lawsuit while the lawsuit runs its course. And that combination of two massive areas of judicial discretion has basically allowed, combined again with a carefully selected trial court virtually guarantees that any law that attempts to just even test the boundaries of what a leg state legislature can legislate on on areas of abortion will immediately be frozen by the district court um, with little chance of, of success in the courts of appeals or going up to the Supreme Court. It's that 
combination of legal effects and strategy that gave rise surely to the Heartbeat Act's provision, which as I guess you could say almost outsources enforcement of the substantive prohibition. Uh, the, 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 there's a provision in the Heartbeat Act that again says, after defining the substantive legal standard of the heartbeat, uh, it pro and, and it prohibits state officers or political subdivisions of the state from enforcing that standard. And rather, as right. we've discussed, it 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 provides for that standard to be enforced through civil lawsuits brought by individual plaintiffs who are empowered by this statute to go into state court and 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 challenge the legality of a, a medical procedure happening in an abortion clinic. Um, David, have I put that fairly, would you say? Yes, that's correct. Okay. So, so Garrett, Garrett, you're, you're highlighting the, the concern I raised at the end of my, um, my article in commentary recently, commentary magazine. Um, I, David's point is very, very well taken that in, 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 Western legal systems, the, the common law and, and the, the common law precedes statutory law and our obligations to one another in society precedes um, it, 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 it preceded our statutory obligations. And that when government legislates, it's legislating on top of those things. Um, but, but our obligations to one another precede that. And I mean that as a legal matter, but also just more generally, as David said, we have obligations to one another and to our society that, 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 that are not simply legislated by a state legislature, but they're inherent in the nature of our self-government um, and, and, our, and our, just our status as, as people. Um, after all, these, we, these, our rights are endowed by our creator. Um, what gives me pause about the statute uh, is what gives me pause about a number of other statutes in often in federal law, um, and these are longstanding. They're very old. Often, uh, we call them quitam cases or other things where where basically an individual is empowered by the government to challenge the activities of another person, sort of on behalf of the 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 the, the political government. Now, oftentimes that's brought by somebody who's injured by the thing that's happening. If I'm a I'm a manuf I'm a I'm a company that's polluting something. Somebody who's injured by that pollution might be able to sue. But in other areas of law, Congress has tried to water down that injury component and empower people who really are far distant from the harm being done to bring the lawsuit. And that's always occupied a difficult corner of American constitutional law. There was a Supreme Court case years ago asking whether those kinds of statutes. Um, encroach upon the power of courts, um, of the judicial power, and the Supreme Court, in an opinion written by Justice Scalia, said, no, no, they don't. But in that opinion, Justice Scalia and the majority dropped a footnote and said there might be a constitutional problem here in terms of these statutes taking away powers that rightly belong to the executive, who in the federal constitution is vested with the power to execute the laws. Um, that's, that concern has been raised by others over time. Uh, William Barr, when he was attorney general the first time, or, or no, sorry, when he was in the Justice Department the first time around, leaving the Office of Legal Counsel, wrote an extensive opinion raising questions about the constitutionality of those sorts of statutes that outsource enforcement. Um, and by the way, when I say outsource enforcement, that might be, I might be begging the question there, I, I, I admit. Uh, but, but just... Uh, William Barr had questions. Uh, John Roberts, long before he was chief justice, raised similar concerns. And so in my commentary article, I said, 
I understand where this provision comes from. And as somebody who was very keen to see the Planned Parenthood versus Casey framework challenged and ultimately overturned, I, I, you know, I welcome these sorts of things. But as a general matter, I'm wary of vesting this kind of what I think is law enforcement power in private hands. Um, and, and what was I going to say to wrap up? Just that at the end of the day, I think... Oh, I know what I said. The caveat here is to be very, very clear. This is not Texas's statute might well, or sorry, the Texas constitution might well abide sort of an outsourcing of enforcement in a way that the federal constitution doesn't. I, it may or may not, I don't know. Um, but I just say that I'd say the federal model is a good model for Texas and that all of us who support the separation of powers ought to at least be wary of a framework like this. Well, I want to say to my friend, Adam, be careful if you study administrative law too much. Um, because when you think about how societies, uh, particularly the common law society regulated itself, it regulated itself primarily through civil and private suits. And we have two models that are always put before us, probably three actually. One is if there's a pattern of injury, you let people sue and that eventually becomes a pattern of behavior that's enforced one-to-one. -one. A second is you, you farm this out to an insurance scheme. And the third is you, uh, you administratively over, you know, through over-inclusive legislation, make sure people do it ahead of time. Um, and what Texas has done, it's, it's thrown back into the common law form. Uh, and it says we're going to enforce relationships through common lawsuits. Now, there's a problem there. And the problem is if you're going to enforce relationships through common lawsuits, we have some standards called standing to make sure you have a stake in the problem and that you're not just a vigilante. See, there's a difference between common lawsuits and vigilantism. Vigilantism, you take upon yourself the authority of the society to enforce on your own. Uh, you're, you're a roving uh, attorney general, as they say. But common lawsuits say you have a personal stake in this relationship, which has been wounded by a break in the contract or, or, or failure to take due care. And that's why the rules on standing are really not just technical rules to make sure the court decides cases as cases, but to make sure that the people are, are in a relationship which is not outside their own authority, that they're not vigilantes. Um, and so if there be a fault in the Texas law is that it does not focus on standing uh, as closely as, as it might. And in fact, Seth, it's possible that as the courts work through this law, they may start refining the application of the law based on principles of standing. They may say someone who is distant from an abortion, rather as opposed to a relative or so forth, uh, or a husband or a father, doesn't have sufficient standing, um, and uh, still keep the law intact, but uh, but refine it in terms of standing, um, which may be beneficial. There's also one other downside to this law, and that is copycats. That is, if uh, if we conservatives. Uh, uh, and liberals who treasure life want to have life uh, protected in this, in this way. Other people may want to have uh, general uh, civil suits against gun manufacturers or just name, just name your, your 
your fossil fuel company down the road and everyone suing everybody. It's, it's, it's hard to think that the legal system could bear that weight uh, if this gets copied across the board. But David, I'm so glad you said that because when I finished my last answer, I worried that I, I'd been unclear and hadn't really nailed my point. And you actually put it better than I could have that ultimately my concern is not about people suing other people um, when they're injured. It is that absence of the, it's that absence of the standing that it, on the face of the law, it, there's, a plaintiff might have no other stake in this other than the $10,000 reward they would get for a successful lawsuit. And it's that distinction. And, and like you said, it is quite possible that the Texas courts will iron that out in a useful way. And, and again, one, hopefully a way that, that helps to prevent the copycat problem, which I'm, I'm very worried about myself. I well, say, that brings us back oh, to ahead. the issue that I attributed to Justice O'Connor in uh, perhaps wrongly, but I don't think so in the Casey decision. And that's the issue of the connection between the father of the child and whether the abortion, and whether he would be informed um, of the abortion. Justice O'Connor used statistics at that time called uh, on domestic violence, where it did uh, stereotype men as being uh, absolute threats uh, to women. Well, we have had much sophisticated analysis of what domestic abuse is now. And uh, summarizing it is the primary, the primary inflictor of violence against woman is the casual acquaintance. The casual acquaintance, the date person, uh, is the person who inflicts most frequently harms against women. The second is the live-in boyfriend. Last on the list is the husband. Um, uh, the, the relative uh, amounts of domestic abuse uh, inflicted upon women by men who are married to them is quite minuscule, it's less than 10% of reported cases I saw in one survey. And so in fact, the safest place a woman can be in America is married and living with her husband. Um, and, and so that, that stereotype would have to be broken. Uh, we would, there would be problems about standing in terms of uh, uh, could grandparents have standing? We have Supreme Court cases which say that the mother is the primary uh, 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 parent uh, to the exclusion of visiting rights of grandparents. So there would be some really difficult domestic problems to solve that the court has laid, laid for us, unfortunately, in being able to tease out what would be an appropriate standing relationship uh, to that child. So I don't minimize the problems. I, I, think the, the, I think the requirement of standing is a good one but I don't minimize the problems in being able to make it effective. An ultimate question to follow up here though. Um, I'm reminded my friend and former James Wilson uh, uh, fellow, um, Josh Craddock has been involved in the arguments over whether or not the history of the 14th amendment and um, historical practice supports understanding the 14th amendment as um, recognizing unborn life. And Josh, you know, this has been very much a debate within the family of um, originalists. Um, and um, Josh is persuaded that the um, uh, historical record shows that indeed 
um, the 14th Amendment does support the um, understanding of uh, 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 unborn life as being protected. But um, in these debates that he's had with um, our friends, Josh has said, ex almost exasperatedly, <laughs> Josh has said, look, is, as long as this is a colorable legal argument, it may not be what you think of as the most prudent legal argument, but it advances the goals of the larger um, uh, uh, effort. And so uh, I guess, you know, I, 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 for our listeners' sake, I'd like to kind of be clear with both of you whether or not you think that um, first, um, Adam, this is, you know, I think, as you said, with the Texas Constitution, this might be permissible, but it would be imprudent. Whereas, David, I think you think it's not only permissible, but um, it's, uh, it's not imprudent. It's, it's actually quite wise. Well, um, I, think, I think it is very wise, though it needs to be sophisticated. It needs to be refined. I would say its application needs to be refined. But what gives me this thought, though, and I'd like to get Adam's reaction to this, is that the emotional reaction <laughs> to this situation um, by, by people now we're going to see across the political spectrum for reasons that Adam and I have just talked about, um, I think is going to impel the Supreme Court to get rid of Roe in the, in the Mississippi case. I think they will say, I think the justices who are leaning that way will may think, may think the following way. If, if we don't just put this finally back into the state legislatures, you're going to have all this kind of low level legislation making a mess of the legal system. Let's clear the decks and put it back into the legislature. Uh, and I, I think it may actually impel more of a, more of a, 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 a determination to finally get this excrescence off the judicial, uh, off the judicial history. So that's a speculation on my part. And um, so on, on the question about the, the, the argument that the 14th Amendment not only doesn't protect a right to abortion, but actually protects a right to life against abortion. Um, I followed some of these debates, the ones you mentioned and Professor Finnis and others who have written eloquently on this. They make some compelling points. I'm not sure what I, I I'm not sure yet how what the right interpretation of the 14th Amendment is, but I would add two points that I think we need to explore in conjunction with that debate. First is just the, what's the proper power of the court in adjudicating that. Um, I'm I am a judicial restraint guy uh, of of at least the Scalia approach and maybe even the the Bickle approach. And where there is a difficult que question so difficult as this, my instinct tends to be, well, even if this was a tie, tie ought to go to leaving space for the legislatures to act on this first, or at least for a sustained period before we, we can come to a judicial resolution. Um, so that's my first instinct. And second, again, getting back to the extraordinary truly singular relationship between uh, an unborn child and the mother who's, who's bearing that child in the womb. Even if the concept, the concept of, of life um, in the 14th Amendment extends to unborn life, um, it's not clear to me that, that that points then necessarily to a categorical prohibition against abortion 
at least in cases where the mother's own life is endangered by the pregnancy. I just don't know how that plays out. I don't know how it plays out in the context of the meaning of the 14th Amendment uh, or the meaning of the 14th Amendment in the hands of judges. And so I've been wary of that position, uh, and I remain wary, not because of uh, the because I'm underestimating the value of human life in the womb, but because I do think the question of the human life bearing that life in the womb uh, presents extraordinary questions um, that 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 are uniquely complicated in this context. We only have about uh, another one minute, so I'd like to give each of you another thirty seconds to comment on whether or not the SB eight legislation is addressed by Texas. Sorry. Okay. So we only have another 60 seconds, and I think our listeners would be very interested to hear what both of you think on whether or not the Texas SB8 legislation survives the challenge uh, to the Casey regime in uh, the Dobbs case. And so um, I'll start with um, Adam and then and then David. So uh, given the history of this subject, one hesitates to make predictions. It seems to me the most likely outcome is that the Mississippi statute is affirmed by the Supreme Court in a decision that at least rolls back the viability standard of Planned Parenthood versus Casey. I don't know that they'll go all the way to, un- to undo the undue burden standard, because I don't think the court will reach the question about what protections uh, the Constitution provides for women whose life or health is in danger, because I don't think the case itself presents that question, really. And for and so you think Texas's SB8 will be considered separately. It will not be enveloped by the Dobbs decision. Just as we're recording this, uh, the Supreme Court granted cert on an accelerated basis to hear just the question of whether the, ju- the federal Justice Department has standing to challenge the Texas law. And that's fast-tracked for argument on November 1st. Um, so they'll probably decide the procedural question, but I don't think they'll get to the substantive question before they decide the Mississippi Dobbs case. Hmm. And David, um, I agree. I think I think the uh, I, I think the uh, the real decision is going to be in the Mississippi case, and that Mississippi has put in a very strong brief. Um, one of the best briefs I've seen from any state attorney general in any of these cases, they don't mince. Um, but the argument that uh, they make uh, and that some of us on the amici side made is that Texas has sufficient evidence of the humanity of the unborn child that it may, it may seek to protect it. It has sufficient evidence at 15 weeks. And if the Supreme Court says that, then that's a win because then Texas could later say we have sufficient evidence at 10 weeks and so forth. Um, Once the viability line is gone, then the protection of the unborn child can come apace. And that may be the most prudent way, which I hope the Supreme Court will advance the the, uh, protection of the unborn in our country. Well, to David and Adam, thank you so much. This was such an informative and lively discussion. Um, We'll make sure that links to uh, Adam's commentary article and David's law review um, piece from uh, 2012 are are available. They they provide the kind of um, background for this discussion that um, truly informs um, what we heard today. So thank you again to two Adam was great. You're not as nerdy as you think, really. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, David. Thank you, Gary. This has been a real pleasure. Oh, thank Thank you. you. Thank you so much. 
This program has been brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights and the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. Thanks for listening.